0: And yes, the Taliban doesn't like dogs. They probably would have killed the dogs. And that's sad. But we did divert military resources to get these animals out. And if you can't acknowledge that that's a moral failure, then I despair.
1: I, I just, it irritates me so, so much. And then you, I know we talked about this, the polling last um, podcast, where it seemed as though actually a few people were sympathetic I, I don't think that's the case i think that most people realize that this was a horrible moral failing um, when it came to the british state
2: welcome to the pin factory the other institute's podcast my name is matthew lash i'm the head of research at the asi in this week's episode i'm joined by my co-host daniel Pryor, our head of programs and morgan shodemai the asis director of operations In this episode, we're going to be discussing Omicron, Crime Week and the Afghanistan Whistle War.
1: The government has introduced Plan B, meaning the reintroduction of working from home guidance, mask mandates and vaccine passports, at least for larger events. But before we get on to Omicron, the dominant topic in the media over the past week has been surrounding an alleged Christmas party at Number 10, last Christmas. Uh, Going to you first, Morgan, what do you make of this? How much political impact do you think this is realistically going to have?
0: I think a lot of people thought this was a Westminster bubble story at first. And it was really, um, you know, just people who were really in tune with politics. Who cared? But it's clear that's not the case anymore. We're on day five of this story, I think. You know, it's, it's going on for at least a week now. Um, and you've seen it cut through to Anson Deck and, you know, some footballers are saying things. So it's certainly not a story that's going to go away anytime soon. And you can understand why, because this is the government uh, who has put these restrictions on us. Remember last Christmas, they completely canceled Christmas, said we couldn't go to our families' homes. You couldn't see loved ones. People were dying in the hospital alone at Christmas time. And allegedly, number 10 was having uh, more than one party. Um, So you can see why people really care about this.
2: Yeah, you can tell when something's had cut through, more or less when two things happen. One, it starts popping up on the meme pages that have millions of followers. And two, when then subsequently screenshot those memes and and screenshots of tweets are sent around private WhatsApp and, and messaging groups. So when it goes beyond the kind of political realm on Twitter and and Facebook where I think it very much started the week and and moved into something else altogether. I I think justifiably so, particularly after the Elijah Stratton video. Now, I don't think that it's necessarily fair to blame her. She wasn't at the party. She's answering a theoretical question very badly. And you can see from that video why she perhaps was not the best idea to be appointed (laughs) um, the, the leading spokesman for the government. What though it does indicate is that they knew about this party. It was something that people around number 10 were aware of and therefore kind of puts a bit of a laughing stock towards the Prime Minister's denials through the week, saying, first of all, it was quite clear it wasn't happening, and then in the between that it was you no know, rules have been broken, and now there's gonna be an inquiry. It, it it seems like this almost certainly happened by all reports, or something like forty to fifty people um, drinking into the, the late hours into the morning um, at a time when London was under, I think, it was tier three restrictions, and therefore um, it wasn't a legal affair. And they obviously should have known much better <laughs> than having a, an event at Number Ten uh, during this particular period, as they're planning some quite extreme restrictions in response to, to the Alpha variant.
1: Yeah, I guess the the kind of thing that the public seems to have on. The worst thing about this is the hypocrisy but it is fair to say I think that during that period and across various lockdowns a huge number of people who aren't uh, number 10 staffers spads or or politicians have ignored COVID restrictions at one point or another of course uh, us three on this podcast have never done any such thing but do you think there's a certain extent to which those in glass houses shouldn't actually be throwing stones here or is there a meaningful difference when it comes to politicians needing to set an example for the rest of us, I guess.
0: I think it's very much a case of Caesar's wife must be above reproach. If you're going to be putting the country under these restrictions, um, you of all people need to be following them. And this is kind of a consistent thing that we've seen um, with this government, you know, the scandals that have come up. Uh, throughout COVID, with you know Matt Hancock and Dominic Cummings, it's the same refrain over and over again that the people who are instituting these uh, measures were not following them. And yes, not everyone in this country has followed COVID guidelines and COVID restrictions, but there are plenty of people who have done so at great personal cost. Um, and I think that's what's more important is the fact that people were following it at great personal cost themselves, and the people who are putting the rules in place were choosing to ignore them.
1: And just to finish off on on the Christmas parties subject before we move on do we think that this is going to have a really quite significant impact on boris's viability i guess as pm because it's generated an awful lot of anger within the conservative party matthew it does seem as though this is even worse than barnard castle when he's more intimately involved with this particular issue do you think this is going to become a more long-term theme of, uh, a kind of the beginning of the end or am i being perhaps a little too uh, presumptuous there
2: Yeah, look, there are some polls indicating that somewhere between 50 and 60% of Brits now want Boris to resign as Prime Minister, and and the Labour Party is clearly ahead in the polls. Uh, The relationship between the Tory party and Boris is extremely transactional. He'll be there for as long as they think that he's someone who can win them political gold, who can win elections. I think... On balance, I can't see him resigning over this. I don't think he's going to suddenly disappear. Um, And I I think he'll be able to come back from this and people will forget about it. The the amount of previous scandals that were meant to be like this as well, the the Owen Peterson one, not Tongo, uh, the Cummings one last year, the mood is is pretty rough, but it's not to the point where actually seriously people are sending uh, letters in to uh, the the chair of the 1922 committee demanding that Boris go. um, And it's not the point where I think it could end him by the next election. So I think you can read too much from the short run. And we should also remember the fact that Theresa May was almost impossible to get rid of. She was awfully bad in every respect, completely failing, losing the command of parliament, pursuing policies that her party hated, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yet they couldn't even remove her on the first go and it, it took a second effort. So on that basis alone, I just can't see uh, Boris going anywhere.
1: Well, was Theresa May ever mocked on Anton Deck though is the question. But um, back to this particular Christmas and the recently announced uh, Plan B restrictions, has the government taken the right step by introducing these? So you've got just a reminder, working from home guidance being reintroduced, uh, vaccine passports for large events, something that got quite a lot of pushback from the the Conservative Party when it was being discussed. Um, I guess to, to start off and break down this question, what do we actually know, Matthew, about this new Omicron strain and what unique or different risks it could pose.
2: Mm. Look, I've become relatively more optimistic about Omicron over the last um, couple of weeks. I, I just think from, from all the data we're saying, the initial reports were oh. It's highly transmittable, but so far cases seem to be mild. But there was some bit of hesitancy saying, well, in South Africa, most of the people who were getting COVID, at least at that point, were pretty young. We don't necessarily know what would happen when arriving in the UK. But since then, we've had basically study after study, most recently from Pfizer, um, suggesting that people with three doses um, would have a pretty similar response to Omicron as they did after two doses to Delta. Uh, We've we've got numerous reports from hospitals indicating that whilst there have been more hospitalizations, a very tiny proportion, much less than Delta, have ended up in ICUs uh, or on ventilators. Um, And then just more broad reports um, we've seen as well about um, hospitals not really being overwhelmed. And there's even some initial indications that um, it might have even peaked in cases in South Africa. So in, in all that context, even though we know Omicron is going to be quite transmittable, uh, and in fact, it it will spread through the population. It is already spreading through the population quite quickly. Um, We have no reason to currently believe that it is actually at risk of seriously overwhelming um, the NHS, which is the the typical criteria for re-entering lockdown, particularly since the the UK, whilst the boost program hasn't gone fast enough, it's still been relatively successful. Um, Most people in the older age groups are triple vaxxed in a way in South Africa, only something like 25% of the entire population is vaxxed. I think we're actually in a pretty good situation, which then kind of leads me to slight bafflement about why the government is jumping ahead into plan B.
1: Yeah, the uh, the idea of don't go to work and uh, but do go to parties is, is certainly a strange one. I think um, I, I started off being a little bit more worried about Omicron than I am now as well looking at, at South Africa if you if you look for example at the time it took for the delta variant to displace the the then beta variant that was about three months and then omicron displacing uh, Delta only took about one month and that in itself that that one fact may be extremely worried but I think for all the reasons you suggest and also uh, the important ways in which the UK is is not in South Africa and the emerging evidence on the effectiveness of boosters then we we should be uh, perhaps more, optimistic. Um, but going into some of the impact of these new restrictions, uh, Morgan, are you looking forward to, to working from home more so than is the case already? Do you think this was a particularly good idea? And, and also your thoughts on vaccine passports as well?
0: I think the work from home directive at this point in the year when we're, you know, a week or two away from people closing the offices for Christmas is a bit of a, a non-issue. I don't know. I don't think it's really going to make that much of a difference to people's plans. A lot of people were planning on working from home, you know, in case they were going to visit elderly relatives and wanted to keep themselves safe and reduce the risk of transmission. So I think at this time in the year, people were kind of already changing their activities. It is just a directive. It's it's not a requirement. Um, I know I'll be going into the office because we only have one week left in our office. So I'll I'll just go in and, you know, continue my work. Um, But I think that what we really need to think about is, is, as you guys said, we don't need to be so um, worried about Omicron in terms of impact on the population and impact on health. It might not be that serious. But what this government seems to care most about is case numbers. Um, It doesn't seem that we've actually changed the calculus for when we bring in these uh, restrictions based on case numbers and not based on hospitalizations or deaths. So if Omicron is very transmissible, even amongst the vaccinated, and we do get high case numbers, then it could be that this government's going to continue with restrictions anyway. Um, In terms of vaccine uh, passports in large venues, I think, Matthew, maybe you you could expand on this. I don't think it's had any evidence that it works in Scotland or increases vaccine uptake or, you know, really makes much of a difference because you can still... Um, transmit uh, the virus if you are vaccinated Um, so therefore vaccine passport is a small measure um, in terms of protecting public health but actually causes a big burden on businesses um, and civil liberties and I think it's even worse the government has trial that they might be talking about mandatory vaccinations point blank which I think would be um, a complete uh, wrong move, and would be very disastrous for actually encouraging people to get um, vaccinated and get boosted.
2: Yeah, on the on the vaccine passport point, European countries all around have introduced them in a recent history. They've seen quite a substantial uptick in Delta cases, let alone Omicron cases. Um, the Scottish government concluded basically that there isn't really much evidence that they reduce transmission or increase vaccine uptake. Vaccine uptake is not higher in Scotland compared to England. Um, they've had pretty similar waves of COVID. Uh, so there's not much of reason to think that it's reducing transmittability. particularly since they're, they're also allowing people to do tests to tick off the, the vaccine passport requirement. I mean, it might have some marginal impact in terms of encouraging some people to go and get vaccinated, but that's more likely than not to be young people who aren't that vulnerable anyway. Although I think the vaccine still does slightly reduce your chance of transmission. It doesn't substantially reduce your, your chance of transmission transmission so it's yeah you get the sense from all these bringing this all together is that it's not like these are the worst things in the world you know, this is not another lockdown we're not being told uh we have to stay at home we're not being told we can't socialize you know you could still go to large events um i think a lot of people will stop doing those things just purely out of a, a precautionary take on the, their own lives and their cells and the risk they want to take but you know whatever we're not being forced to do any of that um what it seems like though is it's not going to have that huge benefit they want to say they're taking it seriously, whilst not really bringing in serious restrictions. And um, the best case of this I saw was uh, apparently at the, the, the number ten uh, private briefing they have with journalists every day. Uh, one of the journalists asks, "Okay, so there's an exemption for singing. Does that mean you can you can take off your your mask in order to sing in a theatre? And if you're in a musical, and, and the response is yes, yes, of course. <laughs> what about if what about if you're singing uh, your way through Tesco? Can you take off your mask?" And they said, "Yes, I, I guess so. Yes." So in other words, what we're doing is restricting people from being able to not wear a mask when they're just generally, you know, walking around doing shopping. Something that I don't actually think is that risky because unless you're talking or screaming or, or, you know, exuding a lot of droplets, it's actually not a particularly risky scenario. We are going to allow people to take off their masks to sing, which is a much higher risk scenario. Or as Daniel's already pointed out, you can't go to work or at least according to the guidance, you shouldn't go to work in order to work, but you should go there to socialize and do a Christmas party, which again is a much higher risk environment. So it just seems completely a kind of incoherent, contradictory mess that's not going to achieve very much, but he's going to have all those other costs we know about. Particularly, I know, I know Morgan have said working from home won't have that much impact. I don't know, this, just this morning, um, someone at the gym was making the point that they're back working at home, they're in a tiny apartment, they don't have any space to work there because um, you are with their flatmate. You know, it's a small kind of like little inconvenience of life. And making life people's lives that much worse by forcing them to, to work from home, even if they not, might not really want to do that or be set up to do that.
1: Oh, I'm looking forward to all of the kind of lockdown skeptic protesters having their method of protest transposed into bursting into song in the middle of Tesco in, in defiance of these uh, authoritarian measures. But just to finish off on this section, um, I think we need to focus on what else the government can do that isn't just uh, restriction focus. There seems to be at the moment chaos in the boost rollout with vaccine centres turning away patients who've booked via the NHS, uh, claim they aren't authorised to give out vaccines. I've seen a few people complain about that on Twitter. It seems a fairly widespread phenomenon. Um, What can we do to get these booster numbers up? And should we be thinking about uh, Omicron-specific boosters sometime in mid-2022?
0: I think one of the things that we really need to do, uh, the government needs to make sure that when they give guidance or they change the guidelines for boosters, that is rapidly reflected uh, at vaccination centres and pharmacies and wherever people are giving these these doses. The idea that must have been over a week ago, um, Boris announced that anyone between 18 and 40 would be eligible for a booster. They didn't say when, they didn't say, you know, how you registered or whatever. Um, and then people have been kind of left to their own devices to figure it out. Um, so people are being able to register on the NHS website for an app for a, an appointment. And then they go to the appointment to try to get their booster and they're turned away because the, the the recommendations haven't filtered down. And this is something that is causing a lot of confusion. It's going to dissuade a lot of people from getting their boosters. Not a lot of people are re- really willing to take the time out if they're not even sure if they show up, they'll get it. Um, So this is something that is just the fundamentals at this point. We've been vaccinating people for a year now. And the fact that we can't get the guidance and the new recommendations to filter down quickly to people actually putting jobs in arms is a huge, huge issue.
2: Yeah, there was a bit of a rumor this week that the reason why the NHS was slower in terms of beginning the rollout of additional jabs to additional groups of people was because the UK Health Security Agency that replaced the Public Health of England was too slow to actually issue them with the, the legal mandate and the, the formal guidance to do so, which if, if that's true, it's a pretty damning indictment on, on the state of the bureaucracy. But more broadly, um, we were promised a few weeks ago that we'd see a massive acceleration in uh, vaccine boosters. And we haven't really seen that. In fact, they were accelerating more so in the previous weeks than they have in the most recent weeks. Um, And we know that we can do a lot more, as was the case earlier this year, than than we're currently doing today. More broadly, I I think there are other things we could be talking about as well, other than boosters. We have these antivirals that the UK has ordered, but not nearly anywhere near enough in order for them to be used widely across the population. So why aren't we ordering more? Um, There's other things like fluvoxamine, which is a low-cost SSRI that's been found to reduce the severity of COVID um, on the margins. I mean, it could just be basically given to everyone who tests positive for COVID and, and then slightly you know reduce the risk to them. Um, and then in the longer run, also we're going to need those vaccine updates. It's absolutely essential. Um, and we're not really hearing too much about the process to accelerate that. Uh, if we're lucky, we might have them by next winter but we really it would be ideal to get them much sooner but that doesn't seem to be much of an urgency or thinking about how you could make that process extremely fast I mean we, we could already you could already rejig the, the mRNA factories to be making Omicron specific vaccines as you do human challenge trials and test them and have them ready to go for the most vulnerable groups pretty quickly I would think but when we're not doing that and that doesn't seem to be
1: the urgency well we started off this section talking about uh, one instance of alleged crime and uh, now it's time to move on to our next section of this podcast on the government's crime week and its new drugs strategy
2: wow daniel that's that that was a bit of a it was an attempt at a segue i'll I'll say look all right
1: i'm 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 still learning okay I, i can't match the master of segues i'm sorry
0: i thought it was a good segue
1: thank you morgan i appreciate that
0: That's right. It is meant to be Crime Week, uh, if you remember, the series of government announcements designed to reinforce a tough on crime message to deter criminal behavior. The week began with drug related crime with a focus on tackling criminal gangs and middle class drug use. But how effective will these strategies be towards reducing drug related harm Dan?
1: Well, it was a mixed bag the the government's new drug strategy. There was some very welcome boosts to spending on drug treatment services around 10 billion pounds of spending over the next few years and that's pretty unprecedented when it comes to treatment and recovery in the UK. It is an area that has Historically, been uh, underfunded, in in my opinion, uh, not something you'll hear me say very often when it comes to uh, any sort of fiscal arguments. But I think there's a strong case, um, actually, a strong fiscal case um, for greater funding towards these sort of areas. If you look at some of the costs of treating uh, diseases that are born out of illicit drug use, for example, then there's a, a strong fiscal case as well. But I say it was a mixed bag, because great, more funding. Um, But at the same time, the government, I think because of their attitude towards drug policy, more broadly, they had to couch this in terms of a broader tough on crime, tough on drug users and blame uh, drug users uh, for crime approach. So there was talk at least in an upcoming white paper about punishing repeat offenders who are caught with Possession of, say, class A drugs by taking away their passports and driving licenses, which to me is just you know, patently a, a stupid and counterproductive idea. If you're someone who, for example, is um, addicted to using a particular drug, you're trying to go through recovery services. a Big part of recovery might be, say, getting a job and getting a stable income. How are you going to get a job if you haven't got a driving license or passport? It's going to make it more difficult to rent out a flat, etc., and it's just going to make the transition away from um, problematic drug use more difficult, which is precisely the opposite of what I think the government wants to achieve. Um, the other aspect of this is is very much trying to pin the blame on what the government has repeatedly called middle class drug users, um, and they're the ones that are blamed for driving uh, drug related crime and violence. And it's it's a useful narrative in the sense that. Uh, the Tories don't have to say, actually, it's all the, the fault of um, of poor people because they wouldn't get a very good reception if they did that. Uh, but if you look at, for example, the where the most uh, drug-related crime takes place, it's usually in crack cocaine and, and heroin, the kind of brown and white um, street dealing. And that does tend to be an area where the people involved in that are from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, so there, there's a certain lack of accuracy when it comes to this. Although I do think that there's a case for, for pinning some moral responsibility on drug users themselves. I think the ones the clearly more to blame for our issues are politicians.
0: Speaking of putting moral blame on users of drugs, uh, Matthew, what do you make of the uh, rumors that came out the exact same day we launched Crime Week about drug use in Parliament and drug use by parliamentarians. This Is, is this another case of really bad timing for the government? <laughs> or do you think this is a real issue they've got?
2: Yeah, one one rule for me, one rule for they. I mean, I think the, the reports that, that came out were that they were doing some tests around Parliament, and um, the kind of things you normally do in a, a nightclub bathroom where they were wiping surfaces to see whether or not there was any resonance of cocaine. And they found basically across most of the toilets in Parliament, including one right near the Prime Minister's office uh, that, that it was, in fact, um, cocaine use. I don't think it obviously comes to a surprise to anyone in Westminster. You've got huge amounts of drug use across uh, the political class, be it politicians, but even more so staffers and, and journalists as well. Uh, whether or not that has much impact, probably not unless you can really pin that down. It does seem like a general irony to me, though, um, you've got all these politicians in cabinet who have admitted to drug use. They, they are you know, the, the epitome of a middle-class drug user. Um, clearly quite functional, clearly not causing a huge problem to society. And yet that's who the government wants wants to go after. But two interesting things I do find about this whole approach. The first one is, at the very least, the way the Home Office announced it was about a huge investment in drug treatment. But the way it kind of was then reported in newspapers and, and no doubt the way it was sold to the newspapers was, you know, we're going to crack down on all those criminal gangs. And there's a genuine case here, of course, these, you know, kind of lying criminal gangs are, you know, involved in some, some serious problematic um, behaviour. And then on top of that, of course, I think mean, by the government's estimate, there's £20 billion pounds every year in terms of a cost of illegal drugs to the community, something like half of all burglaries, I think a, a third of all people in jail, are, are they're related to something, drug crime, uh, as as well as more more broadly um, the, the kind of crime that's simulated by, by drugs. But at the same time, the broader strategy other than a little bit more on healthcare, is the the same approach that has failed for the last 50 years. It's this, we need to go tough on drug users. Um, Over that time, over the last 50 years, we've seen huge increases in drug use. It clearly hasn't worked. Now we've got record numbers of of drug deaths, like 4,500 people died last year from drugs. Um, We know that there is an alternative to this. We we know we can, uh, as Portugal did, um, decriminalise drug use, Um, And and that led to a substantial reduction in in drug use uh, deaths. Um, and, and criminal behaviour, of course. It wasn't criminal anymore, but you can actually deal with the, the people who were using drugs. Um, the size in the past was by things like drug consumption rooms that have proven quite effective in terms of saving lives to people who, who take drugs by begging them somewhere safe to do it as, as well as connecting them to, to allied health services. So we know that there's an alternative approach when it comes to drugs. It doesn't seem like the government's particularly interested in it, and therefore we, I don't think I have much faith in this strategy.
1: I think they were very worried about the tabloids Kind of deeming this new drug strategy as being soft on drugs. So even though you know the centerpiece was ultimately this this increase in funding, the rest of the stuff is peripheral. You know, various Greek names, Operation Cerberus, which is just a different way of trying to stop drugs getting into the country. Basically, more of the same. But as you said, the tabloids kind of reported it as you know kicking down doors and uh, and arresting dem horrible crims approach. Just, and, and, I, and it's a shame in some ways, because I think like the government could have carried some some favor or some some sympathy with people in this area by being more open about the fact that, yeah, we recognize that actually a big part of this is making sure that people who have problematic drug use are, are, have access to treatment and that that's adequately staffed and resourced, but I completely agree with you unsurprisingly, Lesh, on the the broader thrust of this being useless. The Home Office themselves has admitted this several times whenever they've looked into any sort of uh, multinational comparators of how tough countries are on drug use versus how many people use drugs and not really finding much of a relationship, by the way. Um, the problem is that there still doesn't seem to be much uh, if any, political space for them to change their approach. Now, there was some positive news on drug consumption, specifically, where the leader of the Scottish Conservative recently came out and said, yeah, I'm open to a trial of this. So that, for me, was a, a huge moment in um, in looking at how the Conservative Party's attitude at large might be starting to change uh, at least a little bit. This Crime Week, the, the new drug strategy, is another example of that. It's very surprising, you know. Two, three years ago, I never have thought that they'd announce such a massive investment in uh, treatment services, for example. And yet, here we are. So it does seem like we are slowly moving in a positive direction, even if some of the the kind of headline measures, like your your passports being taken away, your driving licenses are, are ridiculous and and aren't going to work and will in fact make things worse. The, the broader message is positive.
0: Right. Well, let's move on to our final topic of the podcast, the Afghanistan whistleblower from uh, earlier this week. Again, a possibly forgotten topic.
2: With so much going on this week, it would—it also might be easy to forget that a former civil servant, Raphael Marshall, made headlines, in fact, some front-page headlines, after revealing the chaos and incompetence around UK's efforts to evacuate from Afghanistan. Just going back to, to where we were in August... Morgan, do you think a messy withdrawal was basically inevitable when the U.S. decided to leave Afghanistan, uh, effectively dragging the U.K. and other coalition forces along?
0: Yeah, unfortunately, I do think it was uh, inevitable. I think with the lack of intelligence, the lack of planning, the fact that the U.S. didn't really clue anyone into their plans – and left so abruptly, really was a recipe for disaster. They knew the Taliban was going to take over. They knew that they were putting the lives of Afghans at risk, especially the hundreds of thousands of Afghans who helped Brits and the U.S. and other Western forces throughout this campaign in Afghanistan. Uh, The idea that there was, you know, if they only worked harder, they could have saved more is kind of a moot point when the actual Intelligence communities and the actual military communities and the leadership of the U.S. and subsequently the U.K. took this decision knowing that it was going to be chaos. They they knew what they were doing. I believe um, was going to result in unmanageable amounts of chaos. So yes, you know you look deep into this whistleblower and you see all of these allegations. If people people weren't working hard enough, they weren't you know apprised of the issues and all of that. That is all true, and I think that's something that needs to be addressed. But at the end of the day a lot of people were set up for failure with this withdrawal.
2: Yeah, it seems like the central failure, at least to me, was the decision to withdraw itself. And I think that's had a hugely damning impact on the the state of the West and and the legitimacy of the US when it comes to promoting uh, liberal democratic values uh, more globally and a huge gift to China. Of course, we've now left Afghanistan in the hands of an Islamo-fascist extremist basic terrorist state that is certainly not helpful globally. And then, of course, on top of that, that the humanitarian tragedy for the Afghan people. There were some reports this week that um, we might, because the economy is collapsing, end up with more deaths just as a result of starvation than actually died during the war itself amongst Afghan civilians. But, but Daniel, moving on slightly to the allegations particularly about the UK's role, Um, you could say the UK was dealt a bad hand once the US decided to leave. Uh, The UK was forced to withdraw troops as well. Therefore, the, the next question is to measure the extent of success. And, and there were a lot of damning allegations. I'm wondering what you made of it. The, the emails being left unread, uh, the lack of language expertise, the senior staff remaining on holiday through a lot of this period. What really stuck out to you?
1: Yeah, I think the the three that you, you mentioned there are all very much things you can't just pin on, oh, we weren't necessarily as prepared as we could have been. These are the results, I think, of a, pretty bad ministerial or at least a bad departmental culture. Um, The emails being left unread and being kind of haphazardly assigned to one civil servant to narrow down and, and prioritize who gets evacuated on pretty arbitrary criteria, that sort of thing is deeply concerning. The lack of expertise when it comes to people working on the special cases team did not know that the correct term for people from afghanistan was afghans uh, and repeatedly referred to them as afghanis you know that might not be a problem in itself but it's certainly indicative of, of a general lack of experience and expertise that was sorely needed in this area you had situations where emails that were sent to Afghans inviting them to come to the airport for evacuation were actually inaccurate a digital copy of that email was enough but they tried to print off emails and things like that that probably delayed evacuations quite significantly and then there's this working culture aspect that that really bothered me actually the fact that as you mentioned uh, the kind of the expectation for uh, foreign office staff is they continue to work normal hours um, and they would only do extra shifts if they were asked to. to me this feels like in some ways an abdication of Of moral responsibility here you know i don't want to blow my own trumpet too much here and maybe i I would get very annoyed at having to do extra shifts and would only do them if i asked at them but in a situation where we as a country have a significant amount of responsibility towards making sure these evacuations went well and people were kind of not you know realizing "Hmm, maybe i should volunteer to, to work pretty hard during this period you had a significant problem uh, where people were more concerned with work-life balance than they were with saving people who'd worked with British troops and, and guarded the embassy, for goodness sake, uh, from the clutches of the Taliban's evil. So yeah, lots of things to to worry about um, and lots of reflections on broader problems within departments.
0: One of the allegations that bothered me most, and I think we, I actually spoke about it when I was last on the podcast, was the evacuation of animals from Afghanistan, uh, pen farthings charity evacuation and and at the time people said you know is this really how we should be using our resources is this the best way and we were you know to use a buzzword term we were almost gaslit into being told no we're not taking any extra resources this is a private plane that we chartered you know it's not authorized to take anything other than animals and cargo etc etc and uh you know this country is a country of animal lovers but it just boggles the mind that there was a scenario where people were sacrificing everything to try to get out of this country, and we chose to get animals out.
2: Yeah, the key point here was the fact that they had to send members of the British military out to go pick up the dogs and bring them to the airport. And those same officials could have been spending that time picking up Afghans who would work with uh, British forces who were going to face uh, oppression under the Taliban and there's something like just five percent or so of the people who contacted the UK seeking um, emergency assistance were addressed and, and the vast majority of the applications weren't dealt with and you have to think, was number 10 pushing, they've denied it, but was number 10 pushing for this to be prioritized? And if so, I think that's just absolutely reprehensible.
1: Well, they denied um, the existence of this Christmas party. So I'm, I'm loath to necessarily believe what they've been saying on, on these sort of issues where there's six of one, half dozen of the other at late. And it, it does seem as though there's, there's at least, there was a prior relationship um, an existing relationship between Carrie um, and and Penn and they both seem to have known each other and there could have been an avenue by which things were influenced there. But I completely agree. This was the thing that disgusted me more than anything else. It, it did uh, make me happy to see that because so many people uh, push back against it, there is this kind of latent understanding of opportunity cost in the great British public that more dogs being evacuated does in fact sadly mean less actual, you know, Afghanis who uh, have a relationship to Britain being evacuated as well. So people have this intuitive understanding that this was wrong. And Penn has tried to push back and, you know, use this excuse of, well, we got our own plane. But of course, as was mentioned, British soldiers gave up valuable and limited time in order to help with this aspect that could have been spent uh, on people who very much deserved it
2: and i suppose in the broader question is if, if this is traditionally the foreign officer attracts some of the smartest people in the civil service it's meant to be run like a, a machine promoting British interests around the world we've now seen quite i guess a prominent case here where, where they've failed in the moment often civil service can hide their failures or incompetencies and, and no one would really be that aware of it because there's not normally such heavy timelines and and dates and things to be achieved most of the time you you can not perform but get away with it. But I'm kind of just, yeah, what does this say about the the civil service more broadly? um, What do we think of their level of competence as as indicated by their inability to deal with with this kind of a crisis? Is it the same story again, I suppose, with COVID? Again and again, we we saw civil servants acting relatively slowly not being able to make decisions, not necessarily having the best information available, um, ministers not being able to pull triggers and and get things done. What is is the story here?
1: I I don't know if you can necessarily blame kind of individual civil servants and and incompetency on that front. but I do think that it's highlighted broader cultural issues within government and cultures of work. so, one of the things that really stood out in the UK's response here was a very poor integration between different departments. So obviously, you know, you had the Foreign Office finalizing the evacuation list, but then they'd have to pass that on to the Home Office for security checks. Um, and it took absolutely ages for the Home Office to, to actually do this and delay the process. So you had issues where, for example... IT systems had not been successfully integrated. So things that weren't necessarily to do with individual level of competence, but were more to do with, I guess, a a lack of understanding that sometimes departments have to work together on specific issues and a lack of planning for that kind of circumstance. You know, for anyone who's, who's worked in a particular government department, they do have their own cultures, their own way of doing things, their own kind of Fierce independence. I mean, you look at the relationship between the Treasury and the Home Office is a classic example of that. You know, they both don't like each other very much, and at the end of the day, it's ridiculous that that's the case, right? It shouldn't be that a particular group of civil servants should have active antagonism towards another area of government, where in fact they they are both you know trying to work towards the betterment of Britain in in a apparently neutral way. Um, it shouldn't be the case that you, you have this this lack of cooperation, this lack of integration.
2: The element of this as well, of course, was the questions about uh, Rob's leadership. And there was to some issues about his ability to make decisions and the way in which he demanded that things be presented in, in spreadsheets. Though to me, at the, at the very least... It doesn't seem like this is fundamentally a question about leadership, you, you could have had someone else in charge. Uh, the other issue there, of course, is that the permanent secretary of the department was on holiday for much of this period and refused to end to their holiday early. And, of course, at the start of this, Rob was also on holiday um, and although cut it short, didn't cut it um, short straight away. So uh, it seems like an, an overall kind of <laughs> laziness to some extent um, when, when it comes to that leadership. But I think you're right that, that there's probably fundamental kind of deeper questions about the, the way things are structured and, and the confidence of the civil service. Um, and you hear that bated breath uh, quite often. Uh, the idea of civil service reform, um, I never really quite know what's going to work, or what you're going to achieve. My, my ultimate civil service reform would be to have the civil service doing fewer things uh, and leaving more things out to private individuals to make decisions about their own lives, uh, and therefore not having being so dependent on the structures of the civil service, because I, I think often we ask too much of them. Public health England being a perfect example here, where they spent years focused on preventative health things, and that inevitably meant less resources uh, for pandemic preparedness and, and pandemic planning. So if you can focus and narrow the state down a bit, I think you can inevitably improve the outcomes. Um, just a final thought, particularly from the Afghanistan point, and this came up last week uh, when we are talking more about migration issues. Uh, what can we do now with respect to, to Afghans, Daniel? What, what would you advocate um, about their ability to, to come to the UK, particularly being working with the UK? We, we got um, a, a program from the government, though, Uh, a relatively limited one that's like five thousand people per year uh what what would you suggest
1: uh well first off i would start that relatively limited program which still has not been properly started yet three three and a half four months now down the line um that to me is just absolutely egregious the fact that it was announced with some fanfare and including ourselves welcoming the fact that they're going to do it but the fact that it's taken this long when as we said, I think at the time that we were calling for such a program, it's not like the Taliban's going to delay knocking on your door and killing you for three or four months while the government and the Home Office gets its its proverbial um, things together. So that's, that's where I'd start. Um, and I'd look to try and expand that beyond the existing numbers as well, because as you mentioned, they were fairly limited. Uh, other than that, I mean, I honestly don't see that much we can do with the situation that we have at the moment, we just have to accept that if the best way of helping Afghanis who are struggling under the Taliban or who, say, for example, just want to escape, they might not have necessarily worked with the British military. But for me, that doesn't make them less entitled to not be subject to an Islamo-fascist regime Um Obviously, it it helps for people to have cultural connections to Britain in terms of integration, things like that. But in terms of who morally deserves to have the chance of a better life in the UK compared to the Taliban, I don't think actually just because you haven't worked directly with the British military, for example, you should be denied that chance.
2: I think the central point here is Afghanistan is our mess. And and largely what we're seeing today, the the collapse of the state is basically a direct consequence of actions of, of Western governments and, and the intervention, the inability to, to effectively um, deal with the consequences of the, the original intervention. Uh, and and therefore, we, we do have a moral duty to the Afghan people and also I suppose that you can have your moral duty uh, to ensure that people have somewhere to go to escape a kind of an authoritarian Regime when they have a, a well-founded fear of persecution. Mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore, it does seem reasonable to me to be relatively open and, and, and welcoming to, to Afghans and even not just those mm-hmm. who uh, work directly with British forces. But on that note, thank you very much for tuning into this edition of the Pin Factory podcast with uh, me, Matthew Lush, uh, Daniel Pryor and Morgan Schottemeyer, all of the ASI. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please do rate, review, subscribe uh, generously uh, and tune in next week for more banter analysis.